Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the African Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Thomas Zuber. I'm thrilled to introduce today Dr. Christopher Townsell, Assistant Professor of History and African Studies at Pennsylvania State University. Uh, we'll be discussing his book, Chosen Peoples, Christianity and Political Imagination in South Sudan, published with Duke University Press in 2021. Dr. Townsell, welcome. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much, Thomas, for having me. So um, maybe to begin, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the study of African history. Sure. Um, so my name, um, as you have said, of course, is um, Chris Townsell, and um, I am an historian of race and religion in the Sudan. Um, and I would say that what really interested in me in the study of African history um, was a kind of broader interest that... I entered grad school with um, with respect to kind of the interplay between um, hagiography, religion, and state-sponsored violence in the British Empire. Um, and so it was through that kind of larger kind of global reading um, that I landed upon the Sudan um, after reading of all books, um, Winston Churchill's um, um, commentary on the Mahdist War of the late 19th century. Um, and, you know, this kind of Sudanese context that had Blacks, Arabs, Christians, Muslims, you know, colonialism, it, it just really um, intrigued me. And so my research has been based on Northeast Africa a- a- ever since. Fascinating. Thank you so much. And so maybe uh, to let's jump into and discuss turn to the book a little bit. And in this book, uh, Chosen Peoples, you've given us a book that's really grounded in South Sudan. And you emphasize, um, and here I quote you, that this is uh, the study not only shows how racial and religious rhetoric was often blurred, but also explores how Sudanese Christians acted as racial architects fashioning race through a crucible that allied racial with spiritual identity and difference. Uh, And you say that on page 12. So maybe tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book and the questions you were grappling with. uh, Absolutely. Um, So I think like many historians, um, this book was birthed out of kind of a personal interest of mine. Um, I identify as an African-American Christian. And so for most of my life, um, I was raised learning about the black church's role 
in U.S. history, um, and in particular, um, you know, how Black people um, who were enslaved kind of, you know, approached God as a kind of, you know, um, source of strength, um, and that there was a very close um, uh, identification um, with the Israelite experience of oppression. And so um, as an African-American interested in African history, um, I was also introduced, I think, to a dominant understanding of basically, you know, white European missionaries kind of coming into the continent and using um, Christianity as, you know, an instrument of colonial power, right? To kind of, you know, keep people calm, right? Um, And to make colonized subjects really, you know, docile um, and things like that. And so um, Christianity in the colonial context, I think in the historiography, right, has largely, um, you know, had, I think, that kind of framing. And so what I was really interested in, right, is, well, how did African Christians use their faith for their own political purposes, right? Is the only story of African Christianity one of domination or is there another story here, right? Where you have, you know, um, where you have African Christians struggling under colonialism, but using their faith for, you know, anti-colonial and even post-colonial revolutionary purposes. Um, And so that's how I really, um, I think, um, that's what I hope readers can take from this book. It it is not um, a triumphal history. Um, It is not an evangelical history, but it is one that I'm hoping, you know, can kind of enter a broader conversation about the public and political roles um, that 20th and 21st century Christianity has had, um, not just in the Sudan per se, but um, throughout the continent. Thank you very much for that. And I think that helps us uh, kind of go to then the uh, sources that you've mobilized and you work with throughout uh, your study. And you worked extensively in the South Sudan National Archives in Juba, as well as archives in the UK, in the US, and Italy. And I was wondering maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, archival work you did in Juba and uh, notably. Um, the work maybe with archivists there or, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So um, it was really quite, um, I'll say serendipitous in terms of how I got to work in the Juba archive. So, um, so I did my graduate work um, in Ann Arbor um, at the university of Michigan. And so my doctoral advisor, um, professor Derek Peterson um, has been very deeply involved in archival digitation work in East Africa, um, and in particular in Uganda. And so as part of a grant that he had, um, he was able to fund my work with the Rift Valley Institute 
um, which is a nonprofit in East Africa, um, to work on digitizing the um, very new South Sudan National Archive. And so um, when I got to Juba in the summer of 2012, you know, the, the archive was basically an enormous tent, right? Very humid um, and conditions that were really not conducive, right, to preserving um, documents going back all the way to, I think, 1902, right? Um, and so the work in Juba was both kind of, um, I would say, there was a, a kind of public service component, right? Um, this really unique opportunity to, you know, um, to help construct and preserve documents for this nation just emerging onto the world scene as an independent state, right? But then also, right, as a, you know, grad student in history, right, having a singular opportunity to really mine through these archives, right, um, and to see documents perhaps that had not been seen by human eyes in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, right? Um, and so there was a kind of like Indiana Jones-like um, element of search and discovery discovery there. So um, it was through, you know, my trip to Juba in 2012, and then a subsequent trip um, that I was really able to pour through a lot of the um, mission school documents and reports um, going from basically the 1920s um, through to the 1950s and 60s. Um, And so uh, I would say that the Juba archive in particular was critical um, for, I guess, my first three chapters. Um, but I think most importantly, um, and I'm sure that um, we will get to this um, when we talk about chapter two, but it basically would have been impossible for me to write chapter two without the Juba archive because that had um, the like courtroom um judicial proceedings that were crafted in the wake of of um the onset of the first sudanese civil war so um but in terms of sources outside of juba um what was really interesting about my methodology is that because of the global nature of christian missionary work in in sudan during the colonial period um, a lot of the archives of Sudanese history are scattered throughout the globe. So um, I went to a Catholic archive in Rome, um, a Presbyterian archive in Philadelphia, um, the Church Missionary Society archives at the University of Birmingham, um, Durham University in the north of England is arguably... Um, the most prodigious archive of Sudanese history outside of Sudan itself, right? Um, and so there's just a way in which it was impossible for me to write what is ostensibly just, you know, a history of religious nationalism in South Sudan without going to, you know, lots of countries that were not named Sudan, right? Um, so yeah.
Thank you very much. And um, maybe before we jump into the different chapters, I was wondering if we could, you could just um, maybe give us a, a little bit of a baseline about the different Christian denominations that you're working with and how those different uh, Christian missions, I guess, interacted with each other uh, throughout the period that you're studying. Absolutely. Um, so in addition to the fact that the missionary enterprise in colonial South Sudan was really a global one, um, there were three main denominations at work. Um, one were the Roman Catholics um, based out of it. Italy. Um, the other were the Presbyterians based out of the U.S. And the third was the Church Missionary Society, um, which was um, quite closely aligned with the Anglican Church. Um, and so in a really interesting way, what happened was um, each denomination had their own sphere of influence within South Sudan, right? So um, one would not have, you know, found, you know, all three denominations in like the same single town. Right. Um, but it, it was kind of like a regional declension. Um, there was not like outright, you know, conflict or tension between the two or, or sorry, between the, the three, excuse me. Um, but things did get kind of dicey, of course, during World War II, right, when um, Italy and the UK and US were on opposite sides of that war. And so, um, you know, the Italians, right, um, that that was a very strange time um, in terms of kind of Catholic um, history in South Sudan at that moment. But there was largely cooperation Um and I can get to kind of some of the um, or one main um, difference that distinguished the Catholics from the rest uh, when we get to chapter three. Wonderful. Thank you. So let's jump into the sort of chapters of the book. Uh, and uh, chapter one notably uh, starts with the aftermath of the Mahdist War in 1898 and the building of missionary schools. And you use the example of the, of the Nugent uh, School, which was, um, I guess, both a colonial project that was suffused with militarist uh, discourses, but was also repurposed by the students who trained them. So um, I guess, why is the Nugent School so crucial as this starting point for your study on Christian political imagination in South Sudan? And you do emphasize this question of um, ethnicity as fitting into uh, the project uh, of the mission school. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think that the Nugent, or I think I argue um, in the text that the Nugent school is really a microcosm of the colonial Christian approach to South Sudan. Um, so during the kind of late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, Victorian Christians imagined that Christianity was engaged in a global conflict with Islam and that the kind of um, the 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 kind of spiritual fate of the world was at stake. Right. The, you know, two largest um demographically speaking, Abrahamic faiths 
were in a kind of global struggle. And in this struggle, Africa was almost seen as a kind of chessboard, <laughs> right? Um, and there was this kind of imagined race against time to make sure that that um, Africa would be Christian, right? And so within this kind of dynamic, Sudan was seen as this very kind of um, critical locus of this global Christian struggle. And so while no, 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 Northern Sudan, right, has been, you know, firmly Islamic for at least, you know, the last thousand years at this point, um, until the late 19th century, you know, South Sudan was neither predominantly Muslim or Christian. And so in the aftermath of the Makhdis War, South Sudan was approached as a kind of space that had to be made Christian in order to, you know, airbrush quotes, prevent um, Islam from um, percolating um, down the Nile into East and Central Africa. And so there was this really kind of major emphasis on, okay, we're not going to send Christian missions heavily to northern Sudan because we don't want to offend and kind of, you know, um, basically stoke any, you know, Islamist anti-colonial fervor, right? But we will send them in mass to South Sudan. And so the Nugent School is really important because it is a kind of, I think, like a microcosm of what the Christian project looked like, right? Um, it was, you know, connected intimately with, with um, education, right, um, and language work. Um, there was the, the kind of expressed goal, of course, that those who entered the Nugent School left the school being able to read English, right, um, being Christian, right, and kind of serving as a new, <clears throat> excuse me, Black South Sudanese Christian intelligentsia, right? Um, but the Nugent School was also a microcosm of the Christian project because it was very ethnically diverse. Um, today, South Sudan has um, roughly 60 languages spoken. And so the Nugent School was also, um, I don't think it ever had um, all 60 um, ethnic groups represented at the school, but it did have a, a handful, right? It, it was a very diverse um, student body. And so because of this, um, you, you know, the staff there on one hand had a goal of saying, okay, we want to kind of, you know, have a student body that is ethnically diverse, but has a shared united Christian identity, right? So on one hand, Christianity is introduced as this kind of, you know, trans-ethnic um, identity that could be used to unite Black South Sudanese. But on the flip side, right, um, the Nugent School is also a microcosm of the ethnic tensions, right? Um, because the staff was also very invested 
in preserving ethnic identities, right? They did not want people to, you know, believe that they could no longer be, you know, Zande, Dinka, you know, Nunut, or um, um, whichever ethnic identity that they may have been, that they did not have to shed their culture in order to adopt Christianity. And so you have, you know, in some moments, like, you know, ethnic tensions, you know, come up. And so there was this kind of, um, you know, this conflict of, okay, we want South Sudan to be Christian. South Sudan is extremely diverse. How can we kind of create a class of Christians that can work together as Christians and, you know, cooperate across ethnic lines while also maintaining their ethnic identity. And so I think that th this is a question that, at least within the history of religious politics in the country, um, is one that, you know, is very re relevant for today. So that's just a long-winded way of saying that um, I think that the Nugent School, in some ways, is exceptional because it was large, elite, and comparatively well-resourced compared to other mission schools in South Sudan. But I think it's also a microcosm and kind of the perfect um, school to look at when thinking about um, the history of South Sudanese politics. Thank you. And I think this leads us to kind of the focus um, that you bring on chapter two to the equatorial core, which kind of serves somewhat as maybe a, a corollary to some of those questions that were raised by the Nugent School. You know that this was really a distinctly, uh, and I quote you here, distinctly South Sudanese multi-ethnic military force. Um, and you say this on page uh, 65. And then you focus really notably on the Torrid Rebellion of 1955, uh, which in part hinged on uh, the soldiers refusing to be transferred up north for a range of different reasons. Um, why did this become such an important kind of political uh, flashpoint um, at this moment in 55? Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So in some ways, um, uh, you, you are right in that the Equatorial Corps is almost like the non-educational arm, right, of this, um, this colonial project to, you know, um, basically make or construct South Sudan as a Christian region. Um, it was birthed, right, out of this emphasis or this, you know, this basic fear that um, the army was formerly being used as a way for Muslims to spread Islam, right? And so they say, okay, let's, you know, send Egyptian troops back up north and create an entirely new localized unit, right? Where, you know, people can be kind of, you know, free from... Um, from Islamic evangelism. And so it is at that point in the early 20th century that the Equatorial Corps is birthed. But if we fast forward, as um, you said, to 1955, we have this really controversial moment. Um, 
basically what has happened is um, after World War II, right, it is decided that despite the fact that northern and southern Sudan have been, you know, practically speaking, basically, you know, um, uh, administered as separate entities, that once Sudan becomes independent, it's going to be a single country and it is going to be ruled from the northern capital city of Khartoum, right? Well, obviously, this makes people in the south very, um, very nervous, um, in large part because there is a very long history of, of enslavement in Sudan, going back to ancient times, but um, revived um, on a very large scale in the 1800s. Um, and so within South Sudan, there were, you know, you know, tales about how, you know, Turkish and Egyptians would, you know, come down South and raid for slaves. Right. And, and so it was, it was almost like, uh, um, it was almost like, um, the dynamic in the U S but flipped, right. Where in the Sudan, the North was seen as the region, you know, of, you know, bondage, slavery, oppression, and the South was seen as the place of freedom. And so in a very controversial move, in 1955, um, the very late colonial government requests that the Equatorial Corps, right, which is at this point, you know, made up of all Black South Sudanese, um, that they be transferred up north to Khartoum. <laughs> this was very controversial because they were asked to do so without being able to move with their wives and with their kids, right? Um, which was very abnormal. And so there was this fear, right, that basically the South would be left unprotected, right? That without soldiers of the Equatorial Corps to protect the South, that the remaining population would be exposed to, you know, predatory behavior predatory behavior um, from North Sudanese soldiers. And so basically what the South Sudanese soldiers do in August of 1955 is say, you know, hell no, we won't go. And um, they take up arms. I think about 300 people are killed. Um, and it is, you know, what I call in the book, the, um, you know, real turning point in the history of South Sudanese nationalism, because it's, you know, the first moment where there is a kind of in mass rejection of a Northern Sudanese political agenda and one that, um, you know, involves like formal, um, you know, um, formal, violence and bloodshed. Um, and so I argue in the book that, you know, while one cannot or while one should not approach the Tory mutiny as a kind of religious 
event, right? So like, it's not like the soldiers said, you know, we're about to start this new, you know, Christian crusade. Uh, um, it, you know, was not that. I do argue that it's impossible to, you know, contextualize and to really understand the magnitude of what the Tory mutiny represented without understanding the religious colonial visions that led to the construction of the equatorial core in the first place, right? And so what does it mean to approach the Tory mutiny, not just as an event that takes place in 1955, but as an event where, you know, the main participants who are acting are in fact occupying, you know, an army corps that was created, you know, with the express project of keeping Islam out of the South, right? So, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, wonderful. Thank you very much. And um, I think in the next chapter, uh, you focus on the post-1955 period, and notably on the period of the First Sudanese uh, Civil War, which you note uh, here on page 68, that it witnessed the creation of a theology that maintained uh, that providence was leading Southerners to victory. And so maybe uh, let's focus on some of those key figures you discuss in that chapter, um, Joseph Lagu or Paulino Dogale. Uh, what was kind of their role in linking um, the spirituality with, um, and you, you know, this language of racial resistance um, throughout the, the Civil War? Um, what's really fascinating about um, the first Sudanese civil war is that there are these um, these two schools of thought that are emerging, right? One is that um, this is a war where Black people are fighting Arabs, right? So it very much had like racial dimensions, um, not on a level of like, you know, what one might call... Um, um, ethnic cleansing, right? So I, I don't think that it can be kind of compared to say, you know, the Rwandan genocide um, or with what happened um, in Darfur in the, the, um, in the early 2000s, but um, at least publicly, right? In terms of, you know, in print, this was a conflict on one hand that was framed as one of blacks of blacks trying to rid themselves of oppression that was being exerted upon them by Arabs. But on the flip side, you have this really um, interesting discourse that emerges alongside that, which frames God as an active agent moving in the conflict. And so with someone like a Father Paul no Dogale, who was um, within the first generation of South Sudanese Catholic priests, right? Um, we have someone who at one point um, uh, describes um, a moment in which, <clears throat> excuse me, um, priests are um, basically being forced to flee from one seminary 
um, because they were accused of harboring rebel troops. Um, And so Father Dogali, you know, writes that it was through God's providence that the, the priests and the seminarists were able to escape and flee to Congo. Um, this, this is just one example of how providence is being referenced in this very racialized conflict. Um, there was one moment where someone says, look, um, troops were shooting at us and God confused them into shooting each other and allowing us to be safe. Um, I found one note where someone says that God literally placed a shield between us and um, and the um, the um, the enemy soldiers and protected us. Right. So there's this way in which um, God is being invoked, not in these very kind of like vague general terms, you know. God, please help us, give us peace, please keep keep us safe. But, you know, God being referenced in very practical, like specific moments, right? And so what does it mean to, or like what, in, in the context of a very racialized conflict, what does it mean for one group of people to invoke or approach God as an active agent in history, um, which is not something that is altogether unique um, in the history of Christianity, but I think is something that um, really hadn't been researched um, with respect to post-colonial Sudan. Um, There's this way in which, you know, the Sudanese conflicts have always been very, like, generally described as being between Christians and Muslims without a real interrogation of, well, you know, how did Christians relate to the Christian God in this conflict, right? Like, it's not just that, you know, people overtly identified as being Muslim or Christian, but like, how did their faith actually inform how they lived their lives, right, as either Christians or Muslims in this conflict? And so um, uh, the archive, you know, really allowed me to kind of, you know, have insight into how people are um, imagining, you know, the you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob within the context of, you know, a massive, you know, human rights, refugee, you know, conflict, war zone, um, crisis in the 1960s. Thank you very much for that. And I think then um, chapter four deals really, um, I mean, then, shifts a little bit chronologically, deals with the Second Civil War, and the source material you work with is really fascinating by focusing on the uh, SPLA-SPLM update, which you argue can becomes this global forum. Um, So I was wondering, 
what were the stakes of the second civil war? Um, and then uh, you really emphasize the importance of biblical imagery that is mobilized in the sources, the kind of use of references to David and Goliath, to the Exodus. Um, how do those factor into um, this, uh, this newspaper or this, the, uh, the SPLA, uh, SPLM update? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so the first Sudanese civil war is fought between 1955 and 1972. Um, again, between the new national government in northern Sudan and South Sudanese rebels. That conflict ends in 1972 with the Addis Ababa Agreement, um, which basically gives the South a degree of regional autonomy, but South Sudan still being a part of Sudan, right? So the country emerges from the war as still a single united country, but the South has a bit more um, regional autonomy. However, the terms of the Addis Ababa Agreement um, are, you know, in time, you know, not really adhered to as closely as they should have been. Um, Oil was discovered in South Sudan in the 1970s. Um, There is a renewed push from the North to make Islam the official religion of state. Um, And so basically by 19... 83, um, the resistance effort, you know, renews in South Sudan to the point of basically starting yet another civil war, Um, this time between um, the northern Sudanese government and the organization that really kind of led the resistance movement, the SPLA, SPLM. And so, Chapter four really dives into the main propaganda newspaper um, published by the SPLA, SPLM. What's really fascinating about this newspaper, right, is that um, for the first six years of the Second Sudanese Civil War, um, the SPLA was ostensibly a leftist Marxist organization. Um, in large part because um, Ethiopia, um, right, to the east, um, Ethiopia at the time was under the uh, Mengistu regime. Um, And so in order to basically curry Ethiopian support, the SPLA espoused um, uh, leftist views that aligned with Ethiopia, right? So the SPLA would have never called itself like, you know, a Christian organization. However, um, in 1991, right after um, the Mengistu regime falls, right, the SPLA needs, you know, international support in order to increase its war effort against Khartoum. And so it's within this newspaper that we start to see um, what I term a, a martial theology, where whereas in the first civil war, a lot of the religious thought was about, you know, 
we need to be free from oppression. Um, you know, we are like the people of Israel who are, you know, walking towards our promised land. But in this newspaper, we have a literal demonization of the cartoon state, right? Um, we have talk about um, spiritual warfare and David and Goliath and these kinds of um, these, you know, this kind of framing of Christianity as, you know, a religion of, you know, not necessarily like conquest, but, you know, a religion that is very much aligned with like, you know, soldiers and a kind of, you know, masculine militarism. Um, and so aside from the actual content um, of the SPLM, SPLA update, um, what my chapter talks about the fact is that, you know, this was a globally circulating newspaper, right? And that despite the fact that the actual conflict was being waged within Sudan, that the kind of ideological, religious framings of the conflict were taking place worldwide, right? Where you had contributors from, you know, New Jersey, the UK, um, or sorry, um, you had um, subscriptions to the SPLA update that were worldwide, right? Um, and so I kind of use that chapter just to show the important role that the Sudanese diaspora plays here. Thank you very much. And I think uh, your kind of last chapter then um, deals with, so to the, in 2005, uh, a comprehensive peace agreement uh, occurs. Um, and the um, chapter five deals with the developments after that and after the death of John Garang. And um, there seems to be a, a new way of talking and living Christian identity, um, which notably accommodated um, ethnic diversity, even in the context of, um, of uh, conflict. And I was wondering how this kind of post-2005 uh, period fits in towards the move towards autonomy and eventual independence of South Sudan in 2011. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, chapter five is an interesting one and was, you know, kind of tough to write, um, to be completely real with you, um, because, you know, one may have expected a kind of happily ever after, right, where, you know, after so many years of, you know, figuratively speaking, um, you know, moving to the promised land that, you know, once they kind of reach the finish line and achieve independence, right, that everything would be all good. And as we know from, you know, the last um, 10 years that that has not been the case. And so, um, you know, I, I, I kind of use Franz Fanon's argument that nationalism disintegrates in the aftermath of independence to show that, um, you know, liberatory religious thought 
is not in and of itself a political project, right? Like it's not enough to actually build like statecraft on, right? It might be a good, you know, resource in in the fight to become free, but then once free, right, something different is required. Um, And so what was actually exciting about, you know, writing the fifth chapter, which, again, um, is, you know, steeped in like a lot of the, you know, post-independent challenges that the nation um, has faced is the fact that you still have people using the Bible to kind of um, influence their political discourse. And so it's not as though people said, okay, now that we're independent, religion is basically useless because now we we have what we want. No, like the same people who, you know, used their Bible to critique the cartoon state were now using it to critique their own South Sudanese state. And so I think that it's really important for um, readers of the book to understand that, you know, the history of Christian political discourse in South Sudan is not one that is exclusively tied or aimed at anti-Islamization, right? And that, that it's not as though, you know, um, it's not, not as though people only converted, you know, or have used Christianity and Nanadi as a kind of counterfeit to Islam, but that even within the context of independent South Sudan, you have people using the Bible um, to infuse their political discourse, particularly during years where you've got ethnic conflict, right? So, um, you know, the Dinka and the Noor, right, um, basically wage a massive conflict between 2013 and 2018, right? And so um, it's just like a really fascinating moment to see, okay, after so many years where the primary theme was was Christian liberation from North Sudanese Muslims and Arabs to now seeing Christians using the Bible to 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 talk about, you know, their their ethnic uh, other as opposed to their racial or religious other. Um, so, yeah. And um, as a last point on Chapter five, um, I think that uh, it was also great to see how religious discourse within the last few years, unsurprisingly, um, is accessible in like um, in online spaces, right? So um, you know, rather than you know it just being you know sermons, newspapers, you know, private correspondence, right? You now have people who can you know kind of inject the Bible and God into their political activism, you know, in online news websites like the Sudan Tribune, um, you know, in the blogosphere, right? And so it 
kind of really opens the door for us to see how lay people, right, people who have not spent a day, right, in a kind of, you know, formal, um, you know, seminary setting, um, yet and still are able to spread, you know, their thoughts far and wide. Um, and so I think that, you know, not just in South Sudan, but, you know, for the kind of larger um field of African Christianity moving forward, it's going to be really incumbent upon us as historians to integrate, you know, online um, sources um, into kind of, you know, um, into basically allowing us to map, you know, what it means to be, you know, a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, or of any faith within um uh within the continent of course thank you so much and uh thank you very much for this really fascinating uh conversation about your book which um and uh, thanks so much for giving us uh this time uh, to learn more about your work i think to conclude um you know tell us a little bit about uh the project that you're currently working on and kind of what are you uh, what are you researching uh, nowadays? Sure. Yeah. Um, so my next book uh, project is on the history of African American engagements with the Sudan. Um, so it is still a history of Sudan, but it is about um, the role that African Americans have played um, in really kind of interesting ways. Um, African Americans came up in my archival research for the first book, um, you know, whether it was um, uh, black college students from Tuskegee Institute um, coming to Sudan in the early 1900s um, to help plant cotton, um, all the way to um, National Security Advisor Susan Rice's role um, in um, in South Sudan becoming an independent state. And so um, this is a history that is kind of um, a history from without um, of the Sudan that I'm really excited about. Um, I'm going to be signing a contract with the press in short order. So um, I won't say the name of the press here because I have not yet um, put pen to paper, but that will be um, happening soon. And so I'm really excited about that new book. Wonderful. We really look forward to reading. Um, at least I, I look forward to reading uh, future work. And uh, so thank you very much for uh, this conversation. And uh, just to conclude, this was a conversation with uh, Dr. Christopher Townsell uh, on Chosen Peoples. Christianity and Political Imagination in South Sudan, published with Duke University Press in 2021. Thank you so much for uh, this conversation. And thank you so much, Thomas.